on his way. Devil is on his way. Devil is on his way, motherfucker. The devil gonna make you pay. Fall to your knees. Devil is on his way. Fall to your knees. Devil gonna make you pay. Fall to your knees. Devil is on his way. Mountain Murderers is an Appalachian true crime podcast with cases spanning the 14-state Appalachian region. Mountain Murderers includes graphic content and explicit language not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoying your social distancing over there where you are less than six feet away from me? Oh my God. Well, we need a bigger table. That's what that's all about. We need about. a bigger house <laughs> Yeah, where true. you can be like on one floor and I'll be on the other. I think that would work and better. And I could social distance myself away from you entirely? Yes. And, um, body and mind out of sight, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I would like to social distance myself away from all of you people. Yeah. And well, by yeah. you people, I mean you and our kids. Yeah. That's what happens when uh, you have a pandemic going on, right? Fuck this pandemic. I know. Well, at least there's some interesting true crime stories right now. Well, there's a lot of information out there about this COVID-19. It's scary. Today, I read that basically the death toll had doubled. It's like in the 2000 mark. Yeah, it's um, we're on track to surpass all other countries with infect confirmed cases and possibly deaths. Well, part of that and I'm going to get on a little soapbox here. Will you help me give me a boost up? Because I'm not tall enough to get up on it by myself. I'll climb up there, honey. I got you. Why the fuck are people not staying in place? See, this is the thing. People are not taking this seriously there's at all. Still, there's still huge groups of people. They're just like, oh, well, it's not a big deal. It's like the flu or chicken pox. If I catch it, then I'll be immune to it. Well, it's just, you know, most people get over it. I keep hearing people saying, but there seems to be a lot more people dying of this. This doesn't seem normal, people. This don't seem like the freaking flu to me, right? This does not seem like the fucking time to get in your car and go on a fucking vacation. We live in Western North Carolina. If you listen to the show, you know we're here in the mountains. A lot of people have second homes here. We have a lot of part-timers, snowbirds. Yeah. Well, the few confirmed cases, we have zero confirmed cases in our county. We are very fortunate at the moment that we know of. But we still assume everyone has it. But That's what you have to do. The few cases that have popped up in the neighboring counties have been brought here by second homers. People who have come to town from New York and Florida and then test positive. Uh, yes, and then so the one instance was someone from New York in Buncombe County. Which is where Asheville is located. Right. And um, so they tested positive, had a confirmed you have the virus. That, so then they get in their damn car and travel like two counties over to another town, Franklin. I mean. Which is, yeah, about a two-hour drive. Who does that? And, 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 and probably just like, oh, well, I got, and probably stopping at stores. I mean, who knows? I mean, why? I just don't get the mindset of these people. I don't understand either. And social media, I, I've got to stop reading news threads and local groups because it's just infuriating. I am part of a group that is like a Maggie Valley, North Carolina group. Yeah. When it, there's a lot of local people, but there's also tourists and people who just love the area that appreciate the mountains, right? Locals have been posting things like, it's not a good time to come here. This is not a vacation. Like, don't come here to your second home. Stay in place. We're all trying to protect ourselves. We need to be insulated. Right. You guys are rude. Yeah, I used to like the mountains, but this is making me feel like I don't. Yeah, I'm never. And people like local business owners are getting emails from people who are like, I'm never spending my money in your town again after the way y'all have acted with this virus. Like I'm supposed and to. And I want to be like, bitch. Just because you're too cheap to go to fucking Gatlinburg and you vacation here, fuck you. Sorry. Well, see, here's the, here's the <laughs> thing, though. It's making me very angry, Dylan. It is, and it's not like a, a local versus them kind of mentality, even. So if these people, no matter no matter where they're from, and we're not singling out certain areas of the country, it's just stay where the fuck you are. It don't matter if you're in the middle of nowhere. It don't matter if you're in a, a bigger urban area. Stay in the damn apartment. Try your damnedest to stay away from people and do basic hygiene and you can be okay. 
But just going around willy-nilly touching every damn thing and acting like it's no big deal is putting you and your loved ones at risk. So if these people are at their home, wherever they live, and a bunch of us from this area had homes all around them, and you're hearing... Well, it just be like if we all decided we were going to go to the beach and chill. Well, yeah, so you're hearing all this shit on TV about how things are, you know, going out of control, whole segments of the world are shutting down. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Never. This is history being made right, right now. Yeah. And so they're seeing this, and all of a sudden they look out, and they're seeing that people they know are from other regions coming to their second home all around them, and not even, like, holing up in the house. Self-quarantining was what they tell you to do, but you're out running around, running through their yard. I mean, they wouldn't appreciate it, is my point. They wouldn't appreciate it, and they'd feel the same damn way. It's very much a sense of entitlement. We know what type of people it is. Oh, we know what type of people these are. It's them people. It's those, yeah. Right. It's people who've got the second home. And not all people who have a second home act like that, right? We're not saying that. Well, in this area, a lot of them do. And then they're, when you're like, just stay home, be safe, take care of your family, well, you should be, you should be lucky you even come up here so you can have a job, a oh, nice yeah. retail job. Well, if you guys didn't have us tourists, to, you'd all be in unemployment line. And I've seen those comments, too. And I just want to be like, do you even know that tourism has only really driven our economy here for maybe the last 15 years? We were once a bustling manufacturing community. Yes, we were. With some major manufacturers who offered high-paying jobs and good benefits. Also, mountain people have survived for hundreds of years, literally like two, three hundred years here in the mountains without your money. So I don't think that you not coming here and spending your money is going to really affect me. You don't work in tourism. I don't work in tourism. None of my family works in tourism. I mean, I just want to be like, who do you think you're, I mean, you really think you're threatening me? Well, here's the thing. <laughs> this area and a lot of areas like it around the country have been ignored for decades. The infrastructure is lagging very, very far behind roads, you know, internet. Con- There's people not 20 miles from us that can't get a decent, solid internet connection in oh, their no. home. So you think, well, they can't stream Netflix. What's the big deal? They can't work from home. They can't do any of uh, you know, college Online classes. Colleges, yeah. Their children can't do. My my girl come my our girls come back from school in the seventh grade with stuff they have to go online and do that even for homework. So these are affecting people in real ways. And then you come be bopping in here, and like you said, there was plenty of manufacturing solid jobs. And if you weren't, they weren't trying to draw you here for your second home. They would be bringing more manufacturing jobs or decent jobs in. But still, are we boring our audience <laughs> with all of this? I'm sorry. Oh We've been gosh. stuck in the house, and this is what coronavirus does to people. We're sorry, guys. Yeah, we get on a tirade, but yeah, I it's just a, am not just... appreciating seeing all the out of state tags and people who just seem to be like completely ignoring the advice of experts just because they have feelings that they don't have to abide by the suggestions or something. I don't know. It's really yeah, frustrating. Just, just stay home. Watch out for you and your family. That's all you can do. Enough bitching. If you haven't already shut the podcast off or (laughs) skipped through to this part, um, we've got a great case today. This is definitely a different one uh, from anything else we've done. Are you ready, Dylan? I'm ready to dig up in it. Our case today takes us into uncharted territory, as you mentioned. We've not discussed a hate crime on any of our previous episodes, so today is going to be our first. Yes, this is a very interesting case, but it's, uh, it's it really didn't have to happen. I mean, it's really sad. The murder of Private First Class Barry Winchell is a heart-wrenching and senseless murder. In my personal experience as a veteran, when you raise your right hand and swear to protect the Constitution of the United States, you expect a certain camaraderie. Your shipmates, fellow soldiers, Marines, airmen, these are people that you look at like, They're in your foxhole, so to speak. These are the people who've got your six. You're literally counting on these people to save your life. Yes, I bet you count on them every single day, no matter what you're doing. That's what makes this story so disturbing for me. Barry Winchell's story made our nation re-examine our stance on an important issue. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, it was implemented by the Clinton administration in 1994. Before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, 
homosexuals were restricted from military service. This policy shifted a bit to allow homosexuals to serve as long as they didn't admit it to anyone and others were not allowed to ask you about your sexual preference. Homosexuals became the military's dirty little secret. Yeah, so I guess we're led to believe before that there were no homosexuals serving because they weren't allowed to, which we know is bullshit. Right, and if people believe that there were no homosexuals serving before 1994, I mean, that is a sore misconception. Many LGBTQ advocates saw this policy as doing very little to protect those who were gay in the military, and that, if anything, it just created more problems within the ranks. I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that because, and just in our society in general back then, for the nation to consider this an upgrade or like a forward-thinking policy just blows my mind. And this was just in 94. Well, what the military would call, like in this situation, green-on-green violence, I mean, it's a troubling thing, but when you partner that with a hate crime, it just seems to make it even worse. It just seems like um, if you were having discussions about people's sexuality and who they really were with everyone, not just including the people who may be homosexual, maybe they wouldn't be afraid to speak up if they're being bullied. Or maybe, because I think a lot a lot of times, I personally forget, these are kids. These are 18 to 22-year-olds, the, the rank and file, the bulk of the military. They're just 18 to 22, 3-year-olds. They're just kids, you know. And a lot of them, like you pointed out, come from rural, small-town communities where maybe things were a certain way all their life. And then all of a sudden, they're in the military, all these different races, which is a good, you know. I mean, it's a really big change for a lot of people. If you come from a rural background and you've grown up in a small town and you've not had exposure, there is a lot of diversity. I mean, the military can be an awesome thing for people because you open up your world to so many new experiences that you've never had and probably won't ever have again. Right, I'm sure, and that's the good part of it. But, but that can also be a problem for some. Well, yeah, in a, in a climate like that where, I mean, just the title alone is absurd. And it just proves that the, the mindset behind the whole policy is totally ridiculous. Barry Lauren Winchell was born August 31st, 1977 in Kansas City, Missouri. In his early years, life was rocky. His parents divorced when Barry was very young, and he lived with his mother and two brothers. When he was around three, the family was homeless, and they were actually living in his mother Pat's car outside of a Waffle House in Texas where she worked. Well, that's just a devastating situation for anyone, especially kids, to be in. During this time, his mother said he was lonely and things were not stable, you know, as they should be. Barry developed some imaginary friends to keep him company. I think a lot of kids do that. Yeah, I'd say everyone goes through and has that to some degree, some more than others. Barry would later be diagnosed with ADD and dyslexia, which would earn him a label of learning disabled when he finally went to school. He struggled academically. I mean, he couldn't read until the third grade. Well, that's a pretty tough combination. You can't concentrate, you know, have a tough time focusing on top of dyslexia, which really is a roadblock, especially to reading. He dropped out of high school, but enrolled in a technical program where he learned to weld, and he did get his GED. Those who knew Barry said he was gentle, soft-spoken, and almost had kind of a shyness about him. Yeah, he seemed like a pretty good kid, pretty sweet guy. The Army recruiter actually came to him. It wasn't like Barry just decided he was going to join the Army. This recruiter happened to pop by their house. Barry's there. He's got long hair. He's a bit of a rocker. He's playing in bands, loves loud rock music. You know, he's not the stereotypical soldier boy, like what you would see as like the poster child for like the army. So, wow. So the recruiter's like literally going door to door through this neighborhood or maybe had some kind of contact with him? Possibly. I mean, I think, and especially back in the day when we didn't have that, like the internet access. Right. And the the reach that we do. I mean, recruiters would come to your high school. Oh, yeah. They would get a list of students' names. They would just randomly call your house, you know, show up at your house. I mean, this was just kind of the way things were back. I mean, you have to figure this is in the 90s, Dylan. 
So Barry's there with his long hair. I mean, he plays in a band. He loves loud rock music. He is not the stereotypical poster child for the U.S. Army. But this recruiter approaches them. They have a sit-down. And by the end of the conversation, his mother and stepfather are like, this might be really good for you, Barry. This could be a great opportunity for you to get money for school, for college, continue your education. You're going to be getting paid. You're going to gain life skills that are going to help translate in the workforce later. Good opportunity. You've got all these benefits. So with some consideration, Barry's like, yeah, okay, I think I might do this. Well, yeah, there's definitely the a army. lot of great opportunities there for young, for any young person. Barry was actually well-suited for the Army. And by 1999, Winchell was a private first class. Those who served with him at Fort Campbell described him as the best shot in the company. He was a talented marksman earning ribbons and was nicknamed Top Gun. Yeah, that's got to be a pretty big honor, I'm going to guess. Winchell... His chief complaint with the military was he felt like he had too much downtime. Oh, so he's a go-getter, right? He wants to learn more, do more. He could usually be found buried in a manual studying. He reportedly knew the Army manual so thoroughly that he could point out mistakes in the material. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, he was a uh, I saw that where he was known as the best shot with a 50 cal on the in, in the whole platoon or whatever. He told his mother that he had hoped to become a warrant officer, which is not exactly like a commissioned officer. If you're not familiar with how the military works, you know, often a commissioned officer, you have to have college or you have to go to like officer training, officer, I'm sorry, officer candidacy school, go through this whole process. You're sworn in as an officer. I mean, it's like a big deal, right? But a warrant officer is a great program that gives it gives people a good opportunity to move forward into like an officer training program as an enlisted person. And you, and you get to bypass a little bit of the background of like having a college education and those kinds of things, but you're still given more um, hands-on because you know, the differences in being an officer and enlisted person is that the enlisted people actually like do the work. They're like the hands-on people who do the day-to-day day-to-day kind of operations right and the officers they're more of like the administrative they're kind of keeping everybody in line they're not really doing like the hands-on work but a warrant officer kind of is a different balance in that they're considered an officer and they have the authority that comes with being in that leadership position but they're also hands-on people as well Okay, well, that makes sense. So they're like the hourly guys, and then the officers are like management, if you will, or corporate. But this gives the regular guy, if you will. I mean, the way I've always seen it is that they're kind of like a bridge between the enlisted and the officers. They're kind of like in this weird middle place where they're still very hands-on, but they also have the authority and power of, like, the, you know, senior, like, officers. Okay, so it sounds like a great opportunity for the rank, you know, the, the... infantry guy and he was really interested in flying blackhawk helicopters that was his dream so he really hoped that getting into like a warrant officer program would lead to being able to become a pilot oh yeah well that sounds really awesome now was barry an angel no i mean come on he's your typical young 20 something year old guy right He liked to drink with his buddies and go out to nightclubs as much as anybody at that age. Go to clubs. They would scope out girls. I mean, he liked to party. Yeah, hanging out, having fun. I think we all did a little bit of that. His superiors would later say that they wish they had 10 more soldiers just like him. He was squared away. He was eager to learn and always prepared. So let's talk a moment about Barry's duty station. The 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell is known as the Screaming Eagles. A little less than 25,000 people live on the Army post. Fort Campbell is located along the Tennessee-Kentucky border. The Screaming Eagles are known for their combat during World War II when they parachuted into Utah Beach on the north coast of France. 19 soldiers who participated received the Medal of Honor. Members also fought in the infamous Battle of Hamburger Hill in 1969. The division is trained in air assault operations. Well, yeah, I don't know a lot about the military, but I've heard of the 101st, so they're, they're pretty storied. 
operations coming out of there, right? In March of 1999, Barry Winchell is invited along with others, including his roommate Justin Fisher, to a club in Nashville. Fisher has been to the nightclub before, and he tells his fellow soldiers about the amazing drag show he had seen there. On this particular evening, a performer named Calpurnia Adams takes the stage. She's a striking six-foot woman with high, round cheekbones and a soft voice. Now, Calpurnia is no stranger to the soldiers who come to the club on the weekends. As a top performer at this legendary but now defunct nightclub called Connections, which prized itself on being like the largest gay club. Yeah, what I saw of a video of inside, it was a big place, you know, it was big, and they were known for their, their um, very, uh, they were known for their huge stage productions, you know, the big shows they'd put on. The soldiers with their fresh buzz cuts would hoot and holler and cheer from the audience. She was used to this. And on this particular evening, she finished her 11 p.m. set and made her way down to the audience. And there was a table at the front of the stage where Winchell was sitting with his buddies. She spoke to all of them, but Winchell was the last to get her attention. According to an interview with the New York Times, she said, She talked to Barry Winchell last because he was so shy, but she immediately fell victim to his pretty eyes and his silly laugh. He told her he'd never met a drag performer before, but was always curious about such things. Somehow, they broached the topic of maybe having a date later in the week. And she says at the start, she was likely the aggressor. Like She was a little bit more like, hey, you know, hitting on him more so than he was really, because he was just really shy. Yeah, but it sounds like he... Um, but he was feeling it. He was having fun and uh, thought she was pretty and all that stuff. And yeah, it sounded like he was ready to get to know her better. Well, the pair fell quickly and easily into a relationship. Calpurnia was a preoperative trans woman. Barry would hang out in Calpurnia's dressing room on the weekends, usually studying while she performed. He would be in the dressing room with his face buried in one of those study guides. Oh, wow. Adams would say that Winchell was a wonderful boyfriend who first and foremost always treated her as a woman. Oh, so make her feel good about herself and all that. He was incredibly respectful and never made her feel like he was ashamed to be seen with her. Others would say the pair seemed really happy together. When Calpurnia would mention, like, having the surgery to fully transition, Winchell would just sort of shrug and say it didn't really bother him. And if Calpurnia introduced him, she would maybe preface it with some statement that he was like a straight guy. She said he would just stop her and he'd be like, it's okay. Like, you don't have to do that. Right. I don't need, you don't have to label me. I'm just, I'm, I'm here with you. Right. It's okay. Yeah. In private, Winchell would tell her that he must be gay since he was sleeping with her. And he'd only ever been with biological women before. So this was new territory. And likely maybe a little confusing for him it's a yeah. new situation yeah one interview i saw part of that interview you were showing me um she stated she considered him a heterosexual man i mean you know and he would say i'm not gay and i'm with you but he truly viewed her as a woman so he didn't see it as it was a gay relationship right and that's that's their thing to figure out you know that's the way i look at it he only saw her off base and never when he was on duty. He never let the relationship interfere with his job as a soldier. Calpurnia was also a veteran, and she had served in the Navy during the Gulf War. She knew for Barry to be involved with her was dangerous, but she assumed everything was okay because the two were really like, actively trying to create a distance between his Army life and what they did off base as a couple. See, that's interesting. So you had a veteran who served in wartime. Yes. And and before the don't ask, don't tell policy, right? Yeah. So you had this person with these feelings, and they couldn't express their feelings. Or maybe they confided in, you know, friends or closest roommates or whatever. But just, you know, that's that's just insane to me that someone can go serve our country and not be able to openly express who they are. Fisher and Winchell, though they were roommates, were often at odds with one another. Fisher was tidy and Winchell was not. Winchell was a smoker and Fisher didn't like him smoking in the room. The two argued quite a bit. 
Now, the situation came to an abrupt head when Fisher hit Winchell in a heated argument. He took a metal dustpan and hit Mary Winchell with it, cutting his head. He had to go have stitches. Well, yeah, I think that's a little much. After this incident, Winchell tried hard to find some common ground with Fisher. I mean, hey, we're roommates. We have to live together. Winchell had remarked in letters to friends that he had requested a room change and was hoping that this would happen sooner than later, but it didn't happen, so the pair was stuck living together, which, in my opinion, is bullshit. The chain of command should have immediately removed these two from this room once a physical confrontation had occurred. Yeah, neither of them got injured. We need to do something because... Because you've got a guy with stitches and you're still going to make these two room together? I don't know. I worked in an admin office, and I dealt with a lot of personnel issues as well as legal issues. Right. And I can just tell you from that point of view, I'm like, what the fuck was this chain of command doing? So if you, and when you were an admin, if you saw something like this and your immediate supervisor, however it works, you know, I'm butchering the military speak. Yeah, I worked fir- in an admin office that was attached to a barracks where there were students. So I was directly involved with, People who were having these types of situations. Roommates who were out of school together. Right. You know, and there's no way that this would have been able to fly. And your first thought would be, they need to be separated. Even if we have more to figure out later, these two got to be separated now. Yeah, so my first thought here is like, okay, then someone in this chain of command, they done fucked up. They suck at their job. Because this should have not happened, right? Okay. They're stuck living together. Winchell tries making peace, even allowing Fisher to borrow his car for a road trip. He returns the favor by wrecking it. So, what the, what the hell? <laughs> I know, right? What a douche. Yeah, I know. Now, Justin Robert Fisher was born January 20th, 1973. So, he's going to be a little bit older than the other junior enlisted people in the story. Fisher was a high school dropout who came from an abusive home. He had gotten his GED and he joined the Job Corps program. He had arrests for crimes like burglary, trespassing, and a charge for possessing a timed device while he was at Job Corps, which got him kicked out of the program and ultimately arrested. What the hell is a time device? Do we know? I mean, I'm assuming it's like a bomb of some kind. Okay. Well, that's not cool. He held jobs at McDonald's, TGI Fridays, but he couldn't even really perform very well in those jobs. At the time he enlisted, the military was in need of recruits. This is post-Gulf War. Recruitment is low. They are kind of willing to overlook some things that perhaps they normally wouldn't. Typically, a criminal past is going to be an immediate red flag for the military, but somehow Fisher got a waiver to go ahead and join. Yeah, and I'm sure he wasn't the only one to kind of sneak through because they want to keep those warm bodies in there. He was a specialist in the Army, and his job was primarily as the driver for the company commander, which meant he had the company commander's ear. Most would describe him as funny and likable, but other folks said he was drunk, obnoxious, annoying. He was the kind of guy who really enjoyed, like, goading people. Yeah, he sounds like a real winner at parties. Don't you call that yeasting somebody up? It's (laughs) it's the yeast beast. Isn't that what you call that, Dylan? Yeah, that's when you just keep on blowing it up, keep them, talk them up, and then next thing you know, they're getting their ass kicked over there. Yeah, well, that is actually a great way to describe Justin Fisher. If they were out in town... He was the guy who would be yelling out, like, nice tits at random women on the street. Oh, my God. Just fucking doofus. I wouldn't. I could never hang around people like that, But Fisher also kind of had a danger about him that folks recognized. He had been diagnosed with ADHD, but he would often forgo taking his medications in order to drink. He had this logic that if he was going to drink, then he just wouldn't take his meds. Oh, yeah, because that's how medicine works. So this combination of, like not taking the medication and drinking. I mean, this is not a good result. When I say drink, drink he did. In another incident, Fisher was extremely drunk, and Winchell was driving Fisher and a couple back to the base. They'd been out in town, I guess out in Nashville or something. Well, they're in Winchell's car. He lights up a cigarette. This prompts Fisher to fly into this rage, demanding that he put the cigarette out. You know, and Winchell's like, dude, it's my car. 
Fisher reaches over the seat and tries to choke Winchell while they're driving down the interstate. Okay, I'm going to put something out. It ain't going to be the damn cigarette, dude. Are you tri- No, you're tripping. Others said Fisher would often threaten Winchell, and these are roommates, that he would tell people like, oh, yeah, well, when we get in our, our room and the doors are locked, I'll kick his ass. And he would say things like, I'll make you my bitch. Okay. Whenever, These guys should definitely yeah, not be rooming together. Just whenever they would have an argument or like they were in public. Fisher seems like a fucking bully. He seems like a real asshole. I would like to meet this guy. I'd be like, I'll make you my fucking bitch, right? There's a definite alcohol culture in the military. A 2019 study showed that the military leads all other professions in the number of days spent drinking per year. 43% of active duty members between 18 and 25 are binge drinkers. And that's with 70% of those numbers being heavy drinkers in general. Yeah, it's almost like college mixed with, like, you have a job and college mixed together. You know what I mean? The services are definitely, like, there's a drinking problem. And it seems to only be worsening. Like, it's not getting any better. I mean, this is 2019 study. Wow. Our story takes place 20 years earlier, so. I mean, it's like this. You get a large number of young people, as you mentioned. Often this is the first time they've ever lived away from home. Together with a disposable income and you're confined to close quarters, typically you're on a base, living in a barracks, most of the junior enlisted folks don't have cars, so there's not a lot to do. Is it true you can drink after 18 if you join the military? No. I thought it was you could drink 18 and up. I think that was true at some point, maybe in other countries. Okay, but not in the U.S. I mean serving abroad. Well, if you're in another country and it's legal, then yeah, if it's legal in France, but not just to be drinking. Okay. Anyway, huge alcohol culture, and it seems like there was a lot of this happening at Fort Campbell in this barracks. Well, this just sounds like a really great environment for trouble. After the trip to Connections, Fisher starts a rumor about Barry Winchell. He tells others, including their superiors, that Winchell is gay. He explains that he, go- he went to this gay bar in Nashville just to pick up another soldier. And while he was there, he spotted Winchell in the bar performing oral sex on another man. Now, there were witnesses who were there that said, mm, that's completely untrue. But like most rumors, true or not, it takes off. Yeah, so he, he, he was there at the bar. So you won't even admit he's there hanging out. Well, Fisher's the one who took them to the bar. Yeah, I mean, that's... What a wimp. Fisher, I should mention, bragged to other soldiers about going to Connections in Nashville. He had been spotted making out with a transsexual woman outside the bar. He had even told others that he had gone to this bar and had been making out with this transsexual performer. Okay. Fisher also would later admit that he enjoyed wearing women's lingerie under his clothes and that he had done so since he was about 14. What the hell, dude? One night, Winchell woke up to a drunk Fisher, like, rubbing his feet. Well, he's evading his personal space. (laughs) And I'm not saying what the hell about him wearing, you know, that's fine. That's what you want to do, do you. It's the hypocrisy. It's the hypocrisy that killed me. Fisher immediately played off the foot rubbing and was like, oh, I'm really drunk, man. I don't even know what I was doing. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking, like, trying to play it off. Yeah, I never blackout foot rubbed anybody. (laughs) I mean, really. As rumors circulated about Winchell, those in charge would ask other soldiers, does anybody want to file a formal complaint about it? Because of the don't ask, don't tell policy, no investigation into Winchell's homosexuality could be launched because first somebody had to file a formal complaint. Right. Nobody could directly ask Winchell about his sexuality because of the nature of don't ask, don't tell. But because of this gossip, whispers among the ranks, people started calling Winchell a faggot, a rope sucker, a butt pirate. A rope sucker? And a shim, which is like a she slash him. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm using these words in relation to the story. No, but we all know it was a damn 90s and what it was like back then, right? And everybody would act like it was a big joke. Yeah. They would, they would say these things to Winchell and then would laugh and be like, ha-ha, man, we're just kidding. 
We're just kidding, Shub. But Winchell had no recourse. I mean, under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, he couldn't talk about it to anybody. If he brought it up to superiors, it could lead to questions or admissions about his sexuality. And if he had to explain himself, it could be detrimental to his career. He could be dishonorably discharged. That's why that policy, there's nothing, that's not going to be effective in any form or fashion, honestly. In 1999, there were 968 incidences of anti-gay harassment in the military. And that was just what was reported. How many? Because I was trying to find that. How many in 99? 968. And that was the the ones reported? Yes. And who knows how times whatever that really is. That's crazy. And again, I'm just going to bring this out because, you know, I have my own experiences and I'm not speaking for others in the military, but my own personal experiences is that there's a certain fear of like violating a code in the military. So if you speak up, you often feel like there's going to be reprisal, like from your chain of command. Yeah. There's a toxic culture in the military without accountability, inappropriate behavior, racism, sexism, sexual harassment, discrimination in general. It often goes unreported. And if it is reported, then it's swept under the rug. Bullying, abusive supervision, shaming, indifference, hostility. I mean, it exists, but it's like this really passive, as I said, under the rug, under the radar kind of thing. And leaders will act like they take this strong stance against it. But the reality is not much gets done as long as productivity and performance is high. Right. Well, I I think it sounds like it boils down to they don't want the hassle of dealing with it. And so, like, in, in public or, you know, to reporters or any any statements to the public, oh, yeah, that's not cool. You know, this is all the stuff we're going to do to stop that. But then when it gets down to actually um, um, doing something about it, like you said, it just doesn't make it up the chain of command. And a lot of superiors feel like any report of bad behavior or wrongdoing reflects poorly on the military, their division, them as a leader. Right. So often speaking up is discouraged, even if it's in like a silent kind of way. Yeah, see, I think that's a, a product of our individualistic nature of our society here in America. That's a, just right quick, like the concept of, of a suggestion box, right? You're at work or wherever. Any suggestions to make things better for everybody, more cost-effective, cool, put it in here. That's a Japanese concept. That's where that was, you know, thought up, if you will. And because uh, they think they're collective. They think about the entire room of people or the entire community. But in America, it's not as effective because the supervisor is not going to give credit to the working guy because he thinks it makes him look bad for either A, not coming up with it, or B, he wants to take credit for it. It's just, you know, it's just. You know, that's just, and that's, I think that that mentality is what creates all these problems you're listing off. Well, you know, I don't talk about this very often, but I don't care to talk about it here with you guys. I was sexually assaulted in the military. And I mean, you know this, Dylan. When I reported it, I was treated like shit. Like a pariah. It was my fault. I was going to put this mark. I was told by my chief, you're going to mark our division. Okay, so they're slut shaming you. I was totally, it was like all my fault. So it's victim blaming. They made me feel terrible about it. They made me feel guilty when the other person was punished. (laughs) That's all the things you shouldn't do to any victim. It was terrible. Yeah, and then you're like you're like you said it's like a scarlet letter on you now, right? Well, it was at that particular duty station. Yeah, I mean, once I moved on, it was you know, it wasn't like it followed me. Right, but that's just so. But it set this set the stage for like the rest of my career that's wrong on so many levels of feeling like you couldn't speak up but you know me i'm not one to hold my tongue no i think that's why we get along together because neither am i you know even having felt this way i still would always advocate for victims and doing what's right that's just my nature like i'm a very fair i want justice i'm a very fair balanced kind of person like i want things to be I want to, you know, universal conformity as far right. as rules go and yeah. punishments and how it's doled out and that everyone's treated equally. I mean, that's like really important to me. So, you know, even knowing that nothing would get done about it or that I would get 
in trouble, I always would just say this is what's happened and I didn't care to speak up. Well, yeah, and see, we're similar in that respect, and we've talked about it before, but that's going to make me speak up even louder. I'm not saying I dealt with the same thing, but just as far as fairness, everyone getting treated the same, no discrimination of any type for any reason, and you're just going to make me speak up louder. So I'm sure, I, I would bet 100 bucks on it, that Winchell probably felt very much the same. He can't talk to anyone. There's this policy in place. He can't report this bad behavior. If he does, they're going to treat him like he's the bad guy, not these other dudes. Right. Not the ones who are harassing him, calling him faggot, essentially terrorizing him, right. making the workplace hostile, the environment feel very uncomfortable. I, I feel sorry for the guy. Well, I feel sorry. He has no recourse, no support. No, I think sometimes people, or especially the younger people nowadays, don't realize. Now, they have plenty of issues they deal with, but. As far as support groups or um, people Political thinking, correctness. Political people correctness. people being more accepting and understanding. Healthy pro- political correctness. And yes, and just be in, and not being afraid to speak out or speak up for yourself. There's still battles being fought today for that very thing as well. But even I, I, it blows my mind when I think about the early, when I watch a movie from the early 90s. Let's be honest, even in the movies we enjoy watching again. They're just, they talk crazy. They just throw stuff out there that nowadays it would never fly. Well, this is an epic, in my opinion, and I know that that probably doesn't matter because we're talking about this true crime case and y'all are probably like, okay, get the fuck on with it. But here's the deal. In my opinion, the chain of command, and I'm talking about like the non-commissioned officers who were directly supervisors to Winchell and these other guys, failed. Epic failure. Yes. Because if you are an NCO and you are hearing your junior personnel using terms like faggot, rope sucker. I mean, what the fuck is that even? Your responsibility is to be like, uh, no, the buck well, stops here. We're not doing that. Right. That's not happening. So the fact that you're just going to let that fly shows me that you're not a very good leader. I'm So, hey, Barry Winchell's NCOs, if you're listening, I got some words for you. Call me. On July 4th of 1999, Winchell has an altercation with another soldier named Calvin Glover. Glover was born January 30th, 1981 in Oklahoma. Now, he was known around the base as being a blowhard and a bullshitter by those who knew him in the Army. A bloviator. He was the kind of guy who'd do anything for attention, and if he wasn't getting what he deemed as his propers, he would, like, throw beer bottles around, throw a tantrum. Oh, my God. He must have been a middle child. You reckon? Look at our single child. Only child, look at me. The spotlight has to be on him. That's hey, very childish. Don't talk about only children like that. I can't help it. I need all the attention, Dylan. Uh, yeah, I've had an experience with that. He was openly racist. He had this Aryan cross on his arm. Oh, wow. He and sounds great. There was a story about, like, he'd seen another soldier's flight jacket, and there was some sort of patch or emblem on it. And he didn't know that it was, you know, some sort of army like symbol he thought it was like some kind of Aryan symbol and like approached the guy like yeah man cool I don't like Jews either and everybody was just like what the what and this guy just sounds like a fucking moron but anyway he spoke very poorly about Jews and blacks he praised skinheads my god soldiers died fighting assholes like that in World War One and two Glover was a high school dropout, and he had lots of problems as a juvenile. When he was in school, he'd get in trouble for just pulling dumb pranks. Like, for example, just putting a bunch of toilet paper in the toilet, and then, like, clogging the toilets up. And we'd get into trouble for these things. Kids that do that grow up into adults that ride on bathroom walls and don't wash their hands. I'm just going to say it like that. He had a criminal history, burglary, assault, much like Justin Fisher. He went to Job Corps, but he was kicked out of the program. He was known to smoke pot, use meth, puff gasoline. These are great life choices. He was in and out of youth facilities. I mean, his parents were constantly, like, putting him into, like, group homes and shit because he was just out of control. Hey, can you do your bird noise right quick? Which one? Just a... (coughs) Oh, my God, it's a shit bird. Yeah. It's a shit bird descending upon us. It's an invasion. Holy shit. 
In the Army, there was suspicion of drug use when it came to Calvin Glover. Soldiers reported that he'd gone home on leave, and when he returned, he was boasting that he had four and a half grams of meth, which they believed because he seemed wired. Well, here's the thing. I wouldn't, if I was using drugs, drugs are bad, okay, I wouldn't tell anybody. What a dumbass. And Glover was only in the Army because he had forged some checks and a judge basically told him, you can go to jail or you can join the Army. See, I don't even understand. I know that probably gives some people an opportunity to turn their lives around, you know, and become a better person. But that's just probably not a good place to start. You know, the judge, I mean, you're just getting a person who's not really geared or ready to do what you need to do in the Army. Right. I mean, I understand they think that this is going to teach somebody discipline. Yeah, I think it's an old mentality, old school. But if you're just like a shitbird, you're not, no. So you're you're giving the people who don't turn their lives around a pass on jail. And then subjecting other regular people who want to be in the army Normal to this ass. functioning people who well, like yeah. truly want to be there and who, want to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, when it comes to these two, Glover and Fisher, Winchell was head and shoulders above and beyond these guys. I mean, he was outperforming them at every opportunity. These guys are exhibiting antisocial behavior on many levels. And he was an exemplary soldier. I mean, people will say, hands down, you know, Barry Winchell was really he needed to be there like he was really good at what he was doing and that these two were just sort of like fuck ups and yeah yeah it's like oh i'll do that instead of this and then they're there fucking everything up for everybody else so on this particular evening glover was talking shit at this keg party they're hanging out the barracks fourth of july evening having a kegger sitting around shooting the shit right So here's Glover telling all these crazy stories about doing drugs, robbing banks, being really outlandish. Doesn't sound real. Going on and on until Winchell finally told him to sit his cherry ass down and shut up. We're all sick of your lies. Okay. Because he was just really tired of hearing Glover's bloviated stories. I'd say that was the feeling of the entire room. This infuriated Glover. He jumps up. He threatens to hit Winchell. Fisher sort of jumps in the middle of the two, is like, hey, no, like we're having a party. Calm down. Glover's been drinking all day. I think he'd had something like 17 beers. He's just fucked up, being obnoxious. Finally, Glover tells Fisher, you know, you need to move. And so Fisher finally gets out of the way. Glover reaches down and tries to grab a beer bottle out of Winchell's hand. All right. Fails. Finally, Winchell puts the bottle down and then just punches Glover like four or five good times in the face. Then he tackles him to the ground and is just holding him there because he knew that Glover was just going to come up swinging and try to fight back, right? Yeah. So as this is happening, I guess there was like a senior officer, senior enlisted officer, you know, NCO walking by. So they try to break it up. Oh, we were just wrestling. The senior officer's like, you know, is everything okay? Makes them, like, do a handshake. Glover's refusing to do the handshake. Oh, wow. Well, Winchell leaves the party. He reportedly felt bad about what had happened. So he's just a genuinely good dude. You know, he doesn't want to fight this guy. He's not trying to have, like, a beef with this dude. He just is like, dude, you know, you're drunk. Obnoxious. Settle down. Like, this is not the end of the world. So he comes back, apologizes, tries to offer Glover another beer, He's refusing. Winchell's like, hey, man, I have some Southern comfort in my room. Do you want some of that? I'll go get it. And Glover's just like, nah, you know, being a crybaby. He's just a dick. Fisher and Glover keep hanging out. Winchell goes back upstairs, goes to bed. They're hanging out in uh, Glover's room, and Fisher is egging him on. He's like, you got your ass kicked by a faggot. Fisher continues teasing him, telling him everybody thinks he's a pussy. How could you let this gay guy kick your ass? That's so embarrassing. Just going on and on. What a dumb. Winchell was sleeping in a cot. So Winchell and Fisher shared this room together. But Winchell had this duty of caring for the company's mascot, which was a dog named Nasty. Fisher refused to have this dog in their room. So like right outside of their barracks room, Winchell had like a bunk, like a cot set up. And he would sleep there when he was taking care of the dog. So he's up there sleeping, watching the dog for the evening. 
Fisher tells Glover, we should go beat his ass. And Glover's getting all pumped up or yeast up, as you say. <laughs> yeasted, yeasted up. up. He's all pumped up. He's pacing around. He's angry, you know, cussing this guy. I should beat his ass. You're right. I should do, you know, I should kick his ass. Nobody's going to, you know, do this to me, embarrass me, whatever. He grabs a baseball bat and begins making these chopping motions. And is like, I should just go beat his ass with this bat. And Fisher's like, yeah, man, you should go do that. That is the worst for the for Glover's personality. He's drunk as hell. I mean, just tell him to hush. You know, dude, come on. It'll be all right. Y'all talk about it tomorrow. Anything but egging him on. That's the worst thing you could do with him right now. The two sneak up to the hallway where Winchell is sleeping. Glover raises the baseball bat and brings it down, hitting a sleeping Winchell probably a good five times in the head. What a coward. In court documents, they would describe his skull cracking like an egg. The scene is horrific. Brain matter is oozing from his ear. Oh, my God. Blood is pouring from his nose, eyes, ears. He's gurgling, barely breathing. But he's still alive. That, that Could you imagine? These two leave, probably a good 10 minutes, go smoke, trying to figure out what they're going to do. They return. Glover hits Winchell in the face with his fist. So even after the first incident, them, him striking him with the bat, no one's like, oh, my God, what, what have we done? What have you done? We need help. Get him help now. So even then, they could have done something about to help him. And comes back and hits him again in the face? What the hell? They think he's dead. So they're immediately, like, scrambling, trying to figure out what to do. Fisher tells Glover, like, you need to go. Go away. Glover's, like, bolts, gets the hell out of there. Fisher starts screaming, calling for help. Because get this, in the barracks, you couldn't call 911 from inside the barracks. Why? You couldn't even call the military police? Hell if I know. There's no way to call out. He pulls the fire alarm. All right. Of course, soldiers wake up. They're thinking, it's the 4th of July. The early morning hours getting into the 5th. Everybody's drunk as fuck. Like some asshole pulled the fire alarm. I know I've been there before. And you're like, what the fuck? You have to get up. You have to like vacate the building. Soldiers are like coming out of their rooms trying to figure out what's going on. And they see Winchell. This horrific scene. Yes. And there's blood everywhere. The crime scene photos are very disturbing. Yeah, that one soldier said he could. he's still barely breathing. But you see blood bubbles coming out of his nose. I mean, what would you think if you stumbled upon this? What the fuck? What the fuck happened? They find this bloody mess around Winchell. Eventually, the ambulance is called. They transport him to Vanderbilt University. His parents are phoned. Everybody's scrambling, trying to figure out what happened. And initially, the Army believes that he was kicked by another soldier. Yeah, so, yeah, okay. That's what, yeah, that's what they're telling people, right? He's been kicked by another soldier. The Army CID comes to investigate the scene. They desperately try to squash the story, making it out that it was just some sort of altercation between two soldiers. All right, so they're being very vague about it, sounds like. The public affairs release a a brief description of this altercation between two soldiers, and that's basically what it is. I mean, it just doesn't give any more information than that. Yeah, and didn't I hear you quote, we were talking about people earlier who said there's typically a little more information about that, even if it's an accident or an incident. There's a little more information like what, what we're really dealing with, but they were rather vague. It was very vague. But somehow, the media got a hold of the story, and the details started coming out about Winchell's sexuality and what had truly been happening on the base. Now, the crime scene was ordered to be cleaned up immediately afterwards. They barely investigated this, and they're telling soldiers, like, we got to clean this mess up. So these guys come in, start cleaning up this crime scene, which I think is crazy, like, there's evidence. I mean, it just, I, I don't understand that part. It's very, it's just not good for so many reasons. It, even if I was a soldier, one of the privates there, I'd be like, yeah, I don't, I think this is illegal what I'm doing. I mean, this is a damn crime scene, bro. At muster, because, you know, after they discover Winchell, they have this sort of emergency muster. Everybody's required to come and be present and accounted for, that kind of thing. Glover's missing. Uh Uh-oh. He is the only one not in 
ranks. This is suspicious. Raises a red flag. So he immediately becomes a suspect. As they start to investigate Glover, they find bloodstained pants in the dumpster that belong to him. And in his room, they find bloody fingerprints basically all over the room. Okay. Glover's arrested. And when he's taken into custody, he told other inmates he'd killed Winchell because he doesn't like fags. Oh, yeah. Well, so there you go. So I'm surprised they didn't have people come in there and clean all that up right quick. Dumbasses. By July the 8th, which is just a couple of days after this, they arrest Fisher. He admits that he urged Glover on, and he had even taken the bat and washed it. He's complicit in this thing completely. I mean, what the hell? In the hours following Winchell's beating, Fisher had sent texts to friends saying things like, I've got something to tell you. You'll never believe what happened. Well, it sounds like he's proud of it. Now, eventually, Glover is found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Fisher took a plea deal and was given a 12 and a half year sentence. The two served their time at Leavenworth, with Fisher being out after only seven years. What a lenient sentence. Yeah, because, I mean, um, out in the public, not the military, you can get all kinds of uh, life terms connected in any way to a murder. Be it you drove the people there, then the murder happened. You planned a robbery, then the murder happened. You know, all these different ways. But that seems very lenient. Glover's defense lawyer, who is a military lawyer, really tried to play it up like Glover was almost like the victim in all of this. This naive kid. He's this 18-year-old kid. He's really naive. He was embarrassed. He had a lot to drink. This had nothing to do with Winchell's sexuality. Oh, Lord, no. It's just, you know, got out of control. I was listening to that guy. You were playing that for me earlier. Fisher, you know, was really urging him on, agging him on. No personal responsibility accepted. Even Glover talking about it, just like, oh, you know, I went out there with the bat, and he kept on and on, and like I didn't know what I was doing, and then I kind of lightly hit him one time, and then Winchell um, jumped up, and it scared me, and then out of reflex struck. I mean, what the, What a coward. And what a damn coward. And they're like, oh, well, you know, it wasn't like this was a premeditated murder. Oh, it's, it's not like, premeditated? When you grab a baseball bat, and you take to beating someone in the skull, I would say that's premeditated. It's premeditated. You went and got the weapon. You were out of, there's no kind of, long after the altercation that, you know, happened early in the evening, this is this is the definition of premeditated. Go back out to where he's at, strike him, leave, and then come back, and then come back and assault him again. So I mean, there's just no way to say this is not premeditated murder. Military justice is very they frame things very oddly. Glover is a fucking narcissist. Like just ugh. nothing's my fault. You know every you know they made me do it. All this bullshit. No personal responsibility. And uh, obviously, um, Justin was a total asshole for egging him on. Did he uh, add to this? Yeah, definitely. He was complicit. And he, uh, it was and a an big, accessory. An accessory, but it doesn't forgive in any way anything that Glover did. You can't lean. I mean, that's such bullshit. Well, I think the thing that strikes me in this story is that Fisher obviously had some internalized homophobia. Yeah, and you know what? The people who are super homophobic, it's because they've had these feelings they don't want to. A lot of times, I think it happens. They've had experiences or feelings they're either, A, embarrassed about and don't want to admit to anyone, or they just haven't figured themselves out, and they want to admit it to themselves. That's what that shit boils down to. I mean, and I'm just speculating here, but I feel like Fisher created this situation and brought all of this attention onto Winchell, like, shines the spotlight on him. He's gay, starts spreading all these rumors and gossip about Winchell, probably in hopes that, like, nobody's going to notice that, hey, I'm the one that's been going to the gay club and is bringing people to the gay club. <clears throat> I'm the one, initially, that was making out with a transsexual. Yeah. And I'm the one that likes to wear, you know, lingerie under my clothing. I so just he's don't just get totally it. trying to, like, point the attention elsewhere i do not get that as a typical bully i don't mm, get it either you know total shit and so like you said earlier you know the don't ask don't tell you know this kind of lit a bit of a 
a pretty big firestorm after this poor guy was killed, right? And so um, a lot of people felt that it contributed to creating a toxic environment, right? An environment that everything you just described would likely happen in. And uh, like the service member defense network were prominent critics of the, the policy for obvious reasons. I mean, it's just... It's just such a bad idea on so many in so many ways. I should mention that Barry Winchell did live like two days after the assault, and his parents, when they showed up at Vanderbilt, you know, he's on his ventilator, pretty much brain dead, and his parents made the decision to pull the plug. And that's horrible. That's how they come. Their young, vibrant, smart, good at his job son had the whole. Everything ahead of them in life. Well, That's no how they have to see, find him and see him the last no time. No parent should have to bury their children. I mean, it's just terrible. Especially over some senseless bullshit like this. And adding to just this devastating story is that Calpurnia Adams, on the evening that Winchell was killed, was competing for a huge title, which was the Tennessee Entertainer of the Year. It was a pageant, you know, for these performers. And she was really excited about it. She was performing. She's crowned the winner. Oh, so she won. Around the same time that Fisher and Glover were planning to go beat Winchell with a bat. She didn't hear about his death until the next day on television. Wow. That's crazy. In the months after the murder, you would think an incident like this would really change the atmosphere and attitude at Fort Campbell, but it did not. They were finding baseball bats drawn on the bathroom walls with words like fag whacker attached. Right, and the only reason they're finding that is because the other, some other people feel comfortable in this environment to do that. They S think it's funny. So fucked up. A movie called Soldier's Girl came out in 2003. It was actually a Showtime movie. Yeah. It premiered at Sundance, and it details the story. If you're interested in learning more about the Barry Winchell story, in the wake of this, the Pentagon created a 13-point anti-harassment action plan, and William Cohen, the Secretary of Defense, ordered a review of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. It wasn't repealed until 2011, which is 12 years after Winchell's murder. Yeah, so that um, I saw where the Soldier Girl movie had won a Peabody Award and numerous Emmy and Golden Globe nominations, and uh, so that was a I guess a pretty pretty damn good movie. I'll have to check that out. But yeah, and so Robert T. Clark the, was he the commanding officer of the entire base or was it just that unit? I'm not, I guess it was the entire base. Yeah, I think it's the entire base. He ref was refused promotion in October two thousand two. And in May of 2003, and his Winchell's parents were vocal critics, public critics of him. You know, they kept kept the story alive about him being responsible for this toxic environment and policies on his base. And but you know what? After he was exonerated, he was was finally made lieutenant general on December 5th of 2003. So they made him wait what eight months or so. Isn't that, is that not crazy? Well, I mean, I mean, not for someone who's been in and witnessed this kind of thing. <laughs> no. Wouldn't that you, even if you liked the guy and thought he was doing a good job and then all this other stuff and this public firestorm to a degree because, hell, how it took a quite a bit longer for anything to happen with actually changing the policy. And you're still going to be like, this guy is a leader? I mean, that just blows my mind. It happens. Calpurnia Adams, if you're interested in finding out more about her, she has a website. She's written a book. She's a very vocal advocate for LGBTQ rights. Really interesting person. She was a pretty interesting person, what I watched of her. The overall case brings up an interesting discussion. I know we're getting a little wordy here, but, you know, we're 20 years after Winchell's murder, and the LGBTQ community has won more mainstream acceptance. Gay marriage is now legal. Trans is a word that's pretty much a household word. It's not like a, a word that people aren't familiar with, right? Right. I mean, it's in the media. We know what it means. People are um, getting more comfortable with being able to come out and, and express themselves. But the focus on Winchell's relationship with Calpurnia, 
and, and I'm probably not um, exactly articulating this in the best way, but I think one of the parts of the story that is so sad to me is that the focus is on their relationship and it's making like his sexuality uh, like a focal point. And Winchell had only dated biological women before and he didn't consider himself gay per se. Right. And he considered Calpurnia a woman. So I don't know. I mean, it gets blurred somewhere in there. And like I said, I'm poorly articulating what I'm trying to say here. But I just feel like they had a relationship and it meant something. Right. And people are trying to make it into this salacious, like, ooh, a soldier with this trans woman. Right. And it's like, you know, the reality is, like, they were two people who were in love and had a good thing going. Their genitals or what was going on behind closed doors really doesn't fucking matter to anybody. It shouldn't matter to anybody. Uh, Yeah. It's between the two of them. And I just think the fact that everybody made this out to be such a, like, salacious case is that we're, like, missing the humanity, I guess, in the details. Well, definitely. And that's, like, I think that's why it blew up into such a big story. The only reason is because of the details and the way it was being treated, what you're describing. You know what I mean? Like, if it was more um, normal sexuality. I mean, it's just a rush to label people. I mean, people still to this day like feel like you've got to label stuff. Can't it just be two people who care about each other? You know what I mean? I'm just glad that, I guess, education is more available today and that we're moving toward being a society that's more accepting and understanding. We are in a lot of ways, but like it's like people still feel need to label everything. I just, I don't believe in labels. It's like it's just two humans who care for each other. I just find the story incredibly sad, and I felt like we should talk about it here on Mountain Murders. I have a lot of feelings about it. It is sad in so many ways, and um, just uh, this policy and this type of thing, I'm sure, affected very, a lot of people in so many different ways. And it's just, it's just a shitty policy. Well, I'm glad the policy has changed. This guy, Glover, like, you can find... One of our resources today, we used a, uh, we found it on YouTube, but it was the show American Justice. Yeah. Had an episode on this case with lots of interviews from Barry's parents, from Calpurnia, and from Glover. That was was well done. That was well done. I mean, and the guy just, yeah. Oh, my God. But you know what makes me sick? Uh, Finally, I'll say it took almost, what, 16 15 years, or no, it's a damn 17 years for something to change, for them to change that policy after this, after the conversation, after knowing how, having a prime example of this policy creating this environment where this can happen to this poor guy. 17 years to even repeal the shit. Wow, and we've repealed it, and look, the world did not end yet. Right? Our military is still functioning. Not yet. Yeah, it's still functioning pretty good, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So, I just can't believe it took us that long to act. That's sad, too. Yeah, it is. Well, this has been the story of Barry Winchell. And hopefully, you know, if you haven't heard this before, it was new to you. And, you know, maybe you can uh, offer up some insight into, uh, I guess, the importance of accepting other people. Yeah, and... um. So, moving on, it was a very sad story, and I, I'm so sad right now. I'm going to have to drink coffee. But, yes, um, thank you for listening, and you can find us anywhere you find podcasts, and we know times are tough out there. So, uh, we're just going to w- ask you on this one to just keep listening, and we're going to keep putting out content, and we hope everybody stays safe out there. Bye, guys.